hello. Last time Emily stole the intro to the podcast, so I think it's only fitting that she does it again. Go ahead. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the broadcast. We're on uh, week four of our music education series. I think we've learned some fun things. Do you have any uh, specific recollections of something interesting you learned? Uh, we talked about the Reformation. We, we did. talked about how in the last episode, uh, vocation became something that was uh, people were able to decide for themselves mm -hmm. what sort of occupation that they wanted to have, what yeah. sort of field that they wanted to go, to go into. I, I, you know, not in the sense that people do it today, of course, but that idea was budding. Well, so that's what Martin Luther would say. Okay, keep going, right? Well, Martin no, Luther, maybe not. Martin maybe Luther not. had some very interesting opinions on music, and his opinions about music changed a lot from like his early time yeah. as a reformer to like his later life. I get it. Kind of like um, Anakin. <laughs> kind of like Anakin, sort of. This is a great cup. I like it yeah, a lot. That's a good one. That's a good one. But anyways, we could talk about Martin Luther all day because he had some really interesting opinions okay. on music. But we got to move forward in time. So Let's go. Let's yes. Go. So today today is going to be a little bit different than our last couple of, couple of episodes. The last few episodes, I've been doing a lot of talking. You've been doing a lot of listening. I love it. It's yeah. Not, I don't have much to do. <laughs> it's it's fun, but I want this one to be a little a little more interactive. Let's go. I don't want to hog the mic. So, today we're going to start talking about a period of time where the music education systems start to look a lot more similar to our own today. And so we're going to talk about some of those some of those developments. The first one I want to bring up is the idea of just how much the world is changing in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Because okay. that's kind of where we found ourselves. We mm -hmm. talked about the Renaissance, and the Renaissance kind of bleeds into maybe what we would call the early modern period, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And society has a lot of upheaval during that time. There's a lot of discovery. There's a lot of uh, philosophy. And in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, that's going to bleed a lot into music and just like the world order in general. Let's go. So when we're talking about the 17th century in music, the 1600s, that's going to be the start of what we would call now the Baroque period of music. And the Baroque period of music is when a lot of the modern musical sound of Western music is kind of born. Obviously, this is still like developing from an earlier sound, but our modern c concept of functional harmony, chords are leading us somewhere that's born in the Baroque period. Versus before that, it was very contrapuntal. Yeah, before that, mm. it's very contrapuntal. And we don't lose counterpoint in the Baroque period. Oh, yeah. Absolutely not. But counterpoint becomes less about the individual intervals that are created between every single note mm. and more about the overall picture of the piece, where we start, where we're going, where we end. And that is, that is really gonna crystallize in the classical period mm -hmm. with composers like Mozart and Haydn, but it starts in the Baroque period. Yes, great. Um, and that change affects a lot of music education okay. in a lot of ways. Um, because as theory becomes more complicated, we need more time to understand it as far as studying, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So since we need more time to understand theory, the expectation of how much education you need to have to be a competent musician is going to continue to grow. And that growth continues until now. 
-hmm. The idea that you need years and years of study to become a practiced, accomplished musician is it's going to start in the Baroque period. Okay. And that is, I think, a huge foundation of our modern conservatory system of music mm -hmm. education. It's a huge part of our modern music lessons. It's just something that influences everything in music nowadays. Uh, so yeah, let's let's. I'm gonna go ahead and give an example of something that music education might look like in the 17th century. Okay. So there was this very famous composer in the Baroque period. His name was Antonio Vivaldi. He's quite famous. You may have heard his work, The Four Seasons, yeah. especially Spring. It's very famous. He had a lot of very, very famous instrumental music, especially for strings. And he's a fascinating composer because what he did was so practical. His compositions were very practical because his job was he was the music director at this sort of highbrow orphanage. And basically what the orphanage was, was it wasn't necessarily an orphanage for like kids that had no parents at all and had no family. It was for illegitimate children of wealthy people. Hmm. So they could go and be in a place, almost like a boarding school where they're treated well, they're trained for a profession, but they're kept away from all the legitimate children and wow. from a, away from all of the like actual court politics of the wealthy people. Very interesting. And especially the orphanage that Vivaldi, there were a lot of these kinds of orphanages for mm -hmm. wealthy people's illegitimate children. But Vivaldi's was especially for kind of like a girl's school. Okay. So it was for women to like learn music and become educated in a lot of other things, but especially use music as a tool to maybe get a better marriage or develop themselves in society so that even though they were an illegitimate child, they still did have a rich, wealthy parent and maybe they could end up marrying like a merchant or some middle-class person and having a, a good life, essentially. Okay. And so what that meant was he practically had to compose his music for a huge variety of skill levels, right? Because he had girls that were as old as you know, teenage years before they were married and girls who were just like babies, little, mm -hmm. little kids. So they were all at different stages in their development as musicians. Some of them were like just playing a violin for the first time. Others were su already successful soloists and could play very well. So what you'll notice if you're a musician and you look at Vivaldi's music, it's very common for him to write a piece where a lot of the instrumental parts are really easy but there's a soloist part that's difficult. Yeah, I, that's exactly what comes to mm -hmm. mind. I remember when I was in middle school, the first music education, big music education part of my life was learning cello mm -hmm. and orchestra. And we did a lot of Vivaldi. Yeah. We did a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and it was the kind of thing where, you know, the cello part was simple enough. Mm -hmm. It could just be one, it could just be do, dosos. Mm -hmm all Something around very easy and then the violin would kind of be the most sophisticated mm -hmm. part i remember yeah. too listening to like a, a double trumpet concerto mm -hmm. of his where you yes. know everything else is pretty simple but then you have two trumpets going off mm -hmm. yeah and he did that he he was really creative in his music to make something really beautiful that that could be really easy for the beginners but also really hard for the people that wanted a challenge wow mm -hmm. kind of like when we develop our theory classes, we have exactly. beginner theory and we have advanced theory. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. if if we're if we are working with an ensemble, like for instance our honors program, mm -hmm. 
everyone in our honors program is a really talented player. But even within those talented players, there's still a variety of skills they're comfortable with, skills they haven't worked on as much, and that's why when we're choosing our pieces that they're gonna play, we really tailor the set list so that everybody gets a moment to shine, everybody gets a moment where they don't have to, you know, they're not being as challenged so that the whole program isn't insanely hard. Mm -hmm. That's part of what makes someone a really good band wow. leader. that's exactly and what we're doing. Yeah, okay. and, and that's, that's exactly what Vivaldi did. Mm. So I think that, that that music education system is a fascinating picture of what music education is going to start to become mm -hmm. as we're leaving behind the Renaissance. The idea of you're gonna have students that are really advanced, we should challenge them. We should give them something really hard to do when they're playing. And that's a, that's a huge part of university education now, right? Yeah. Like if you're in a university program, I mean, you were a vocalist, you were, pro you were in choir, you had many opportunities to audition for a, a solo probably mm -hmm. in your choir. And we give those opportunities to students a lot still in mm -hmm. ensemble settings with band, with orchestra, with choir. It's a very normal part of our music education system. Yes, mm -hmm. that's true. Yep. And we don't have to read music if you're a vocalist. <laughs> that's, that's uh, I guess, true for a little while. You can get yeah. by without you, reading music for a while. You can get by while. without reading music, yeah. But if you want to really shine, you've got to learn some theory. Yeah. You've got to learn to read some yeah. notes. Or fake it. Uh, or fake it. <laughs> <laughs> listen to the recording a lot. Just listen to the recording <laughs> Listen a to the lot. recording a lot. But yeah. speaking of recordings, actually, let's bring that up a little okay. bit. So another... A big part of the change that I mentioned earlier is the idea that the expectation for performers is going to get higher and higher mm -hmm. and higher and higher. And part of what uh, pushes that forward is the competitiveness of the musical market. Mm -hmm. And part of uh, that's driven by a lot of things. The first one is an essential change in the way that musicians make money. And that happens as the Industrial Revolution is happening, as democracy is becoming a big part of political systems in Europe, because before countries became democratic, or before kind of like the fall of a ruling class, the way that musicians would often make a living, if they were musicians making a living, was to be employed as a court musician. Mm. So Haydn is a great example of this. He was a court musician. He was employed by the Esterhazy family. They were a Hungarian family of nobles. And basically his full-time job was to work for this family as a musician writing music for their personal court ensemble. And he wrote music for this ensemble and he was paid to do that his entire life. And that was his basically main source of, of mm -hmm. income and employment for his whole life. He lived comfortably, he had a family, and that's how he supported himself. Consistent income. C consistent well, I, income. I, I did a project when I was in college about the uh, income mm -hmm. of Mozart mm -hmm. and Beethoven yes. d during their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And what it came down to for them it just in general of how they made money they were commissioned yes so and it, a lot of times they were commissioned by rich people mm -hmm. it, yes. it was and they started with you know small pieces mm -hmm. as in you know just a sonata just a piano piece mm -hmm. and then of course they start writing symphonies and stuff like mm -hmm. that uh yep. and uh, of course uh, mozart's um career was pretty darn short yes yeah. he died very he, young he died very young uh anywho 
Uh, and he was totally broke by the time he died. He yes. was very lavish. He made a yes. lot of money, and he spent it all. And then he was broke by the time he died. Yep. Uh, Mozart and then Mozart made a lot of money too, mm-hmm. but he didn't have that kind of falling out. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and it, I I'm glad you brought up Mozart and Beethoven because those are two of the examples I wanted to use. That, that's so, why I brought them up. Yeah. So Mozart Mozart and Haydn were sort of contemporaries. Haydn was a lot older than Mozart, mm. but they did kind of live in the same world when it comes to music. Mm. And Haydn is one of the last examples we have of some a composer who's really able to earn his whole living from one patron. Um, and that's because Mozart lived just into the just until the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. By by the year 1800, that's like not really possible anymore. And Mozart mm. is like Died in 93? He, he, uh, I think so. Something, something like that. He died, he died, yeah, he died before Haydn. In really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he um, died like Because a, he died so young. Really young. Um, yeah. and, and so, like, Beethoven, for instance, Beethoven's, Beethoven tried so hard. His goal his whole career was to try to get a court patronage. But he could not. He just couldn't. Because at the, by the time Beethoven lived, it just wasn't possible for rich people to afford this kind of con- this kind of luxury because by the beginning of the 1800s you think about the French Revolution and all of these political things that are happening to basically bring down the aristocracy to make the aristocracy accountable for their ruling privilege and part of what that meant was that rich people were becoming less rich. They were they didn't have the money to spend on luxuries like a full court orchestra that we're paying all of uh-huh. their expenses. <laughs> and so that's why Beethoven was never able to res- get the kind of patronage that he wanted. Because by the time he died in 1827, nobody had that kind of patronage anymore. Even Beethoven, who at the time, everyone thought he was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the change we're seeing. We're going away from, we're employed full-time by the a court, we're employed full-time uh, by a court or the church, and now people are having to do pieces for commission, like Mozart and Beethoven, or have some kind of part-time church appointment that they supplement with other income, or, as became the case with many composers in the 19th century, supplementing your income by performing and doing tours. And this is where we have composers like Liszt. Mm. So Franz Liszt, he's a Hungarian composer. And, and remind us what time period we're in. This is the 1800s, mid-1800s. Mid, yeah, so, so post-Beethoven. Post-Beethoven. Uh, th- so the, we're f- this is firmly the romantic period of music, stylistically, that we're talking about. So Franz Liszt and many other composers like him, Niccolo Paganini, for example, mm. They made their money by composing music and touring and performing that music and being paid to play shows that they are performing at. Now, for this to be a thing, well, since this becomes a thing where performers are making a living doing basically solo shows as like a headliner, kind of like our modern band's tour, Mm -hmm. the only way this is possible is for them to be so good at the instrument that people are willing to come and pay to hear them play. And because, because people realize this is a way to make money, it becomes a very competitive mm. sort of market. So only the best players, only the best composers with the biggest following can actually earn a living this way. And Liszt is one of those people. Mm. Uh, and that's why, if you're a pianist or if you've heard Liszt, his music is really, really hard. It's very difficult to play. And it's very flashy and it's very showy. And Liszt was the guy that, you know, 
he would go and play a show and women would be sitting on the front row and they would faint because he was <laughs> just so attractive <laughs> and dashing and they would throw roses or That's their underwear cool. onto the stage. And really? It, oh, yeah. It was like the Beatles before the Beatles, shall we say. That is something Yeah, else. for sure. It was He was absolutely wow. the like heartthrob kind of figure. Ryan's a list. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. He was, cool. he, was, uh, he was getting attention, shall we say. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. Okay. And I feel like that. Can model I have a piano lesson after this? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. First one free. Go. Cool. You one haven't free. had a free yeah. one yet. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, uh, but yeah, so Franz Franz list kind of fits into this into this category. Mm -hmm. Now we still have that, right? We still oh, yeah. have composers, well, and performers making a living by touring. Mm -hmm. And isn't that kind of the case with our modern streaming economy? People like Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande and Khalid and whoever. The majority of the money they make is from playing shows yeah. and touring. It's not from making money off of their royalties because they For don't sure. make yeah. money on their royalties. Yeah. They make money primarily on touring. Sponsorships. S yeah, sponsorships and, kind of and touring. Yep. So that kind of system w is already kind of in place in the 19th century. Yeah. Which well, I think it, is pretty fascinating. Yeah, that is very fascinating. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So the main... So that that's kind of how we get into the um, that's that's part of what drives the emphasis on you need to be the best possible performer. Mm -hmm. You have to be so good at your instrument that you're better than anyone else and that's how you can earn a living mm -hmm. as a performer. That and that comp that competitiveness has not gone away. Let me tell you. If you're oh, a violinist and you want to play in the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, you better be so good even from such a young age or you will have no chance at all. Yeah. Because there's just so limited spots for performers and so many people that it, wanna play. You have to be amazing. And you say violin, mm -hmm. that's the instrument with the most spots. Mm -hmm. You know, let's talk exactly. about you want to be the trombone or mm -hmm. of, of the orchestra. <laughs> you want to be a trombonist or you want to be, yeah. a, like, for instance, or a percussionist. Do, I, I, you I, know? Is it safe to say there's maybe less than a hundred professional trombonists that make their money solely off of being in an orchestra in this country? In this country, I would say that's probably not an inaccurate number. Yeah. It's probably not an accurate number. Because an orchestra has two, mm -hmm. three. Yeah. It, 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 and, and not every piece of music even needs a trombone. Exactly. Well, and also a huge part of it is that there's not even that many symphony orchestras in this country that can pay their musicians a full-time wage. Yeah. M many, if not most, people that have a job working for a symphony orchestra, they supplement their income with some other job, like totally. teaching lessons or, or uh, teaching church. at a school or a church musician. Mm. Very few people can actually earn their whole living mm. just playing for a symphony orchestra. It's super rare. Yeah. It's super rare. Not much money there. Yeah. And and that's true. I mean, that's true in, man in many countries. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not just the United States. That's kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. Only the most... Uh, prestigious and well endowed, uh, monetarily well endowed um, orchestras can afford to pay all of their musicians a full time salary. Yeah. And that's also part of why it's so competitive mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's just not that many jobs. <laughs> um, and so and and so let's talk about the trickle down of that, right? Kay. You you want to be a a professional musician who plays classical music, which was kind of the only option for uh, people before well, there was a lot of recording technology. And there's not that many orchestras that have a job opening for you. So you have to be the absolute best at your instrument to get that job. What this means is people are gonna start taking music lessons from a younger age 
because you have to have a head as much of a head start as you possibly can in order to be the best. Mm-hmm. And also, people are private lesson teachers are going to be approached with the expectation that you're going to make my student the, the amazing. Best. You're going to make them the best. And my student is going to try to be the best there is. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of, oh, we're just taking lessons for fun. This is just to enjoy it or to like get you up to sort of like a mediocre level of skill so that you can be marriageable or just like have fun with it. Mm-hmm. That's going to be uh, obviously that attitude still exists. You know, many students even today take lessons just for fun or just because they want to get you know, sort of good at an instrument, not because they want to make a living. But this class of students that are taking lessons because they want to be the, they want to be the very best, and they want to make a living at it and be the absolute top of the class, that requires them to have more specialized education mm-hmm. from someone who's also really, really good at the instrument, mm-hmm. and that. So that trickles down into private lessons. It also ends up in the university system, especially with conservatories, mm-hmm. where if you want to be the if you want to be the best and get the best education, you have to go to the school that has the best instructors, and those instructors are only going to work for a place that's really prestigious and has really really talented students. So then you start to have places like Juilliard or the Eastman School of Music or even UNT, where mm-hmm. the audition process is very rigorous and you have to be so good to even get in Mm -hmm. and once you're there it's very competitive students are pitted against each other because everything is a competition we're competing for jobs it's cutthroat yeah and that is that's a huge part of conservatory education nowadays at top top conservatories Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at other universities like for instance where i went to grad school texas tech university it's not so competitive there's more of a collegial attitude there's more of a cooperative attitude but there's absolutely still many many places where if you go to study there you're just going to be stressed the whole time because it's so competitive and your classmates can't be that you can't be friends because you're you are the competition (laughs) Mm -hmm. so we have some and i have a lot of respect for it but we have some very notoriously uh cutthroat instructors at smu Mm -hmm. that will will just be tough on you Mm -hmm. uh another thing too I, i think about smu and their instructors so many of the instructors at SMU are instrumentalists in the Dallas Symphony because mm-hmm. they supplement their income at the Dallas Symphony yes. with being a teacher at SMU. Yes. Okay, the last sort of thing I want to throw into this is the idea of recording technology. Oh, let's go. Because recording technology also changes the way we see performance. And the way or don't see performance. Or don't see performance. <laughs> it changes the way we think about performance. Mm. And the main change is that it even even more it elevates our expectations for absolute perfection mm. when we hear something. Oof. I, I, I love when I bring a student in the studio mm-hmm. to record for the first yes. time because it is so hard. Mm-hmm. I, I think I saw a meme one time that's like, you know, me playing guitar in my room and it's like Van Halen mm-hmm. and it's like me playing guitar for my friend and it's just like what am I doing mm-hmm. and then yep. me recording myself mm-hmm. and it's just like oh uh, awful terrible it, it, you know playing to a click recording do you do you know how much margin there is for messing up there's zero margin. there's zero margin there, and you yeah. hear and you hear everything on the recording and especially with if, if we take for instance classical music 
where we're gonna have a lot of different recordings of the same piece of music by different orchestras. Which one do you think people are gonna listen to? The best orchestra? The best one. The Whoever can record it the most Or the perfectly. most famous. You or know, the most I, famous. A lot of times, uh, I've done this where like I'll search a piece mm -hmm. and it'll say, conducted by Bernstein, and I'll be like, oh, I'll click on that because I know that guy. Because I know Bernstein is amazing and yeah. he worked with the most amazing musicians. Right? So yeah. this recording is going to be a good recording because I can trust this name. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge part of what makes all that, that elevates the standard for absolute perfect playing to an even higher level than mm -hmm. just the, com the competition mm -hmm. of performance mm -hmm. jobs. And in classical music, that's even more the case because people will compare recordings and listen to the one they like better and absolutely trash you if you play worse than someone else because you're playing the exact same mm -hmm. music. So the standard is very high. I had a professor at SMU who played percussion uh, in Ray Charles's band for mm -hmm. a little bit. And he told me this crazy story where he was playing in Ray Charles's band, they were recording something or they were rehearsing for something. Mm -hmm. And Ray Charles just has the most amazing ears. Mm -hmm. And yes. they're playing through the song. I mean, it's, it's it's a big orchestra, it's a big ensemble. And he hears something like a one trumpet play a wrong note. Mm -hmm. And he just goes, stop, <laughs> stop, you, get out of here. Oh my gosh, Jesus. Just kicks him out on the spot. Jeez. Kicks him out on the spot. And then of course, and, you know, John Bryant, the drummer, he's like, jeez. Please don't oh make a mistake. God. Don't oh make a mistake. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, and that's like, that's an extreme example. Mm -hmm. But even even to a smaller degree, we do that when we're listening to pieces of music, when we're listening to recordings of music. How many times have you heard a cover of a song and you're just like, ah, there's just something about this I don't like, oh and you'll God. never listen to it again. Oh my God. And you may even think to yourself. If, if you ever see anything else that's by that same person that did that cover, you'll think, oh, I didn't like that song, that their cover of the other song, so I'm not gonna listen to yep. this. And that, that's- It's a scary world. That's exactly part of what makes music so competitive nowadays. Oh yeah. And recording technology has, has been amazing because it allows people to spread their music way further than mm. we ever would have been able to, especially in combination with the internet. But it also means that our, our standard and society's standard for what means what is good music is it has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It has to be absolutely perfect. Nothing less than perfection is good enough. What we just recorded about two minutes of a cover, mm -hmm. you and me, yeah, last week, we did. this week, and I, uh, yesterday we had the day off because it was a freeze. Mm -hmm. So I got to edit it, mm -hmm. and man, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not even close to done. Yeah, I'm not even close yeah. to being done because it, it just it has to sound awesome. Yep, and it's hard to make something sound awesome. Yep. That, well, that and that's quickly, quickly. Well, and also, I mean, that's like that's even working on like some pretty good takes that we got. You know, uh, like yeah, I, I, when we were yeah. when we were sitting recording that, like the song's not that hard, at least no. for the piano part. Mm -hmm. The vocal part's more complicated, so you had a harder job than me. But like, you know, we got some pretty good takes out of that. Yeah. At least I did on my yeah. part. Yeah. But even with pretty good takes and only two minutes of the two minute cut of a song, the amount of like subconscious things we do that as musicians that we can play live and no one will notice, but <laughs> on the recording, it sounds terrible. It's, it's, it's huge. Yes. And pe it is people do huge. not, that's why it takes so long to master and mix any recording. If you, you know, if you've ever been in the world of engineering or gone into an, a professional recording uh, studio, 
you'll know. It is a huge complicated process to make something even simple sound good on a recording. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, there, just with this one recording on, on the vocal part, there have been many times in which, you know, I have a note and if I was on stage singing or mm -hmm. something like that, you would be like, oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. But you hear it in the recording and it's a few cents off. Yep. So I raise it just a few cents. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. Put, just put it on just the spot. slightly which, out of tune. Which also, I want to say too, there is something wonderful and uh, scary with recording technology mm -hmm. that I, I, this is what I tell my students. The only thing right now with recording that you can't fake is delivery. Mm -hmm. But yes. if you sing the wrong note, we can fix that. We can fix, we can that. fix it in post. You it, can, you it's can it's fix it's, it it's annoying, but we can fix yes, it in post. Yes, it is annoying. Yeah. Anywho, yeah. But so yeah, recording recording technology has changed a lot of how we view music generally, and that changes how we view our music education mm -hmm. as well in terms of perfection being mm -hmm. a standard for a private lesson, for instance. Mm -hmm. You may uh, many instructors, n not really me. I would say this isn't necessarily my philosophy, but many instructors, many really good instructors have the philosophy that if you're working on a piece of music, you cannot leave it behind until you have it absolutely perfect. Yes. You can't you can't move on to another piece of music until uh, this one is perfect. And in and, and a lot of ways, I think that is a respectable virtue. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. well, and, and that's what I'm saying, you know, even though that's not my philosophy of music and music education, it's the philosophy of many mm -hmm. really, really good instructors. Yeah, and absolutely. it's not it's not a bad way to teach your students. No, uh -uh. But that is so reflective of our our sort of last yes. hundred and fifty years mm -hmm. idea that only perfection is good enough. If you play a note wrong, mm -hmm. re-record the take. If you missed if you missed a note, if you were a half a beat behind on an entrance, that's not good enough. Play the whole thing over mm -hmm. again. Uh, I want to say something that you may think is a tangent, so mm -hmm. so I'll keep it short. <laughs> it's okay. But I want to emphasize too that video killed the radio star. Mm -hmm. it, it, it truly did. Yeah. I, I have a, a really extensive record collection of just the records that I got from my grandparents and uh, friends of my parents, friends of my grandparents, and my and my parents. And of course, a record collection like that is mostly from 1940 to 1980 because mm -hmm. after that the you got eight tracks and stuff like mm -hmm. that. When you look at the 70s and you look at the album covers in the 70s, you could be ugly mm -hmm. and sell an album. Yes, and that's make money. that is totally you could. true. The, 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 there are some ugly people on the cover of these <laughs> albums that I have, and they're awesome albums. Mm -hmm. They're goofy looking looking people. Yeah, and you could not pull that off in the 80s. Yes, you, yes, yeah. it really is true. Like the. Recording technology changed a lot when it comes to sound recording, mm -hmm. as we've been discussing. But it it really is true that, especially because artists need to tour to make money, the idea that you need to put on a visual performance in addition to your sonic performance, that's also become a huge deal. Oh and there's so many manifestations of that, like for instance, music videos, album covers, sponsorships, and ad shootings where your picture is going to be in an oh, advertisement, yeah. um, especially music videos with MTV in like the 1980s and, and such. Um, the idea of a visual spectacle mm. 
uh, even if even because because it, it is true that you can become very famous even if you're not attractive, right? Like Ed Sheeran is not a cute person in my personal opinion. I know some people had a huge crush on him. He's just an average looking dude. He's still become extremely yeah. famous because totally. he's very sincere and his songwriting is Great. quite frank. It's it's yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. But even Ed Sheeran at his shows, it's going to be a performance. Yes. There's going to be a visual spectacle, even if it's not mm -hmm. that he's attractive. Mm -hmm. It's that there's something visually exciting to watch. Mm -hmm. it, you know, his music videos, I, there's going to be something visually exciting. I know this guy named uh, Tom York, and you know, <laughs> a lot of people would not call him call him the cutest guy in the world. <laughs> yeah. But man, I mean, he he's incredible mm -hmm. at, his, at his craft, and they put on a perfect show. Yes. When they play. Yes. They put on a perfect yes. show. Well, and I think there's, I mean, I'm going to plug something I like, you know, there's there's really no better example of the idea of visual spectacle being integral to a performance than K-pop. Oh, because good point. like yeah. K-pop consumption when it comes to like actually listening to the music is like yeah, people stream K-pop, but people watch K-pop videos. That's mm. what it mm. is. That's like the mm -hmm. a huge part of the performance. I mean, they have perfect choreography. Mm. When companies are putting together a group, they're gonna pick people mm -hmm. that all look similar so that they have even their physical appearance mm -hmm. looks very similar. Their shows yeah. are always gonna be about dancing and pyrotechnics mm -hmm. and confetti and just the m most immersive visual experience. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely essential uh, to K-pop. On the education of K-pop, mm -hmm. I, had I uh, experienced when I was in college a lady of Korean descent present a project on how K-pop works? Mm -hmm. They start those kids at seven. Yeah, very, and, very. And they're young. they're in dance class, and they're in pretty class, mm -hmm. and they're in music singing class. Mm -hmm. And if they don't speak Korean, they're in Korean language classes. That, that is what they do. Yes. And, and they don't go to, that that's school. Yes. That is their mm -hmm. school. Yes. And then, and if at some point, if they're like, no, you're not good enough, you're done. Yeah, they and there's no, there's no, there's no, like yeah. We're saying. Well, and, and it's, that's also, uh, talking about competition in music, like, your chances, if you, even, if you get accepted as a trainee, your chances of actually debuting with a Korean group are less than your chances of getting a spot as a violinist in an orchestra in the United States. Because it's that competitive. So many people want to do it. Mm. It's so hard to make it. And even if you debut with a group, your chances of making it long-term are still so small. Yeah. Because, you know, people's people's tastes change quickly. Yeah. And people, you know, in, in all countries, in all popular music, you know, one minute you can have an amazing hit and everyone loves you, and then the next minute you can be someone that people mm. forgot about. It, that, that, and there's a lot of luck involved. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember, you know, being in Nashville and especially having one of my best friends, one of the best musicians I know, go, go to Nashville and do the whole Nashville circuit. Mm -hmm. There is not a perfect correlation between someone's talent mm -hmm. or even their looks mm -hmm. and their success. Yeah. A lot of it just comes down to luck. Mm -hmm. Knowing the, the right, right people. Right place, right time. Making the exact song that people wanted to hear at mm -hmm. the exact moment that you released it. It is, it is very difficult. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult. How did Owl City happen? Remember that one? Right. That popped out of nowhere right? when we were little. Right. That's that is so true. Popped I remember. Out of nowhere. I remember listening to Fireflies on repeat as I played yeah. Halo Three in oh, 2011, bad. maybe <sighs> even earlier. Jeez. That I was want, a good time. I want me time. some Halo Three right now. That was a good time. They, they just turned off the servers, right? 
I you see that? well, I never played online because I'm bad at online games. Oh, I, I I never play online because I'm not good at games. Yeah. But I love playing video games. Yeah. Um, I have not gotten the new Dark Souls yet. Uh, whatever it's Elden called, Ring. Elden Ring. Yes. Because because I want to wait for the PS5. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking uh, we, we were talking about this yes. yesterday. We both I, like video games. We both love video games, but you know. I, 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 I have not bought so many new games this year mm-hmm. because I'm just like, I'm going to wait on the PS5, mm-hmm. but now I'm just like, oh, is it really Will I be, ever get one? Will I ever get one? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not going to like video games anymore. I'm going to grow out of video <laughs> games by the time I get a PS5. And I, I, I sure don't play as much anymore. Yeah. You mean I life, life comes at you and you don't have time anymore. Yeah. But I like playing music. Yeah. Pretty fun. Yep. Okay. Awesome. But anyways, so that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a brief overview of one of the big priorities in in music education, how it's changed since, you know, in the Mm -hmm. last 300 years especially, but especially in the last 150 years, that we've got this emphasis on being the absolute best. And that's because you can't make a career unless you're the absolute best. Mm -hmm. And maybe even if you are the absolute best, you can't make a career out of it. Absolutely. Um, And so that's, that's that's a huge part of our music education philosophy now, whether we like it or not. It's because it's become society's expectation and let's say something about the philosophy of our studio yes the goal of every student when they come to us is to nurture their enjoyment of music yes do we have students who want to be the best and go out and do the best absolutely and we treat them that way we we develop a curriculum for that Mm -hmm. and we we are hard on them Uh, at the same time we have many students who are just here to be able to pick up a guitar mm-hmm. and have a good time, to be able to pick up a guitar, sing with a friend, and just enjoy it the rest of mm-hmm. their life. Yes. So, and that's come a, sign up for your first. Come free sign up lesson. for your first lesson. We we love to see young people enjoy music. We love to see people, as they grow in their understanding of music, appreciate the music they already like even more because they understand how it works, they understand the skill that goes into it, they understand the training that's necessary to make that kind of sound happen. And I think it's a wonderful thing that it's possible for people to take piano lessons or guitar lessons or voice lessons without the expectation that Mm. if you don't do this perfectly, you're trash. Because that's a philosophy I don't agree with. I believe that no matter how good or bad you are at an instrument, if you're growing and you're having fun, then it's not a waste of your time. Absolutely. It's, and to me, that growing and having fun should be the ultimate goal. Absolutely. Yes. Music. Yes. We're lucky enough to be able to have mm-hmm. a job in music because we love music mm-hmm. and that's what we want to do. And hopefully our students that love music and want that to be their career will be able to make that happen for them. But they will still enjoy it. We still enjoy it without being mm-hmm. the absolute best. We enjoy it without having a job with the DSO Absolutely. or having a recording contract with a you know huge company yes we have the coolest jobs in the world we, you know, do. we, we, we get to do all this stuff I'm mm-hmm. thinking of one time well we have a student who wants to be the best that there is mm-hmm. and he, he can and he's great I remember being in this room developing his practice curriculum mm-hmm. and as we're doing it one of the first things I said is hey when you sit down at the piano I you cannot sit down at the piano every single time to practice your butt off. 
You yeah. need to have time where you sit down at the piano for leisure. Mm -hmm. And he was and it's like, just for fun. What? Yes. I'm like, because you're going to burn out. Yes. You, 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 you have to be enjoying mm -hmm. your craft. Yeah. Sit down and just play for fun. That's one of the first things I said. And mm -hmm. he's like, oh, my God, I can't wait to tell my parents that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's important to it, – it, sometimes it can be hard to keep that love alive if you uh, end up feeling a really competitive spirit about music and end up feeling really competitive about playing. But we we really encourage students because it's our main priority that students just have fun and Absolutely. just enjoy playing. Never a bad time to start. We have an 81-year-old that just started guitar, and he's yep. fantastic. We have, I uh, can't believe this, but man, as of the last week, we got a two-year-old yeah. that that is having a fantastic time doing singing with one of our best uh, voice instructors. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, some people out of college who just take it. We have uh, some of my favorite students are the seniors, the senior boys that uh, in their last semester of high school, they don't have football. And mm -hmm. football was their whole life for 18 years. And so and now they like, were like, what can I do with yeah, my time? <laughs> guitar. And yep. then they have a fantastic time. Yeah. Watching students grow up is a really joyful part of our job as that, instructors. That, that, that's why I made this company. I, mm -hmm. I just am in love with mentoring people mm -hmm. and teaching. Yeah. I, and I wanted a way to make money from that. And I also wanted to develop a place in which wonderful musicians such as Emily and all of our instructors could have a living doing what they love mm -hmm. and sharing what they love with people um, and being able to go out and perform with the help of the company and being able to record with the help of the company mm -hmm. and, and pursue their musical craft. Because as we have talked about, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. It's hard. It's, hard. it's really it, hard. Yeah. So the, the, I, I thought, you know, when I made this company that, that this was going to be a good way to, good way to go about this life, mm -hmm. you know, p pursuing a life like this because uh, it's pretty hard to get a seat in the violin section. Yeah. And that's the easiest seat you can get in the orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, so we, we love teaching. Come join the Rodman Steel family. Let's do it. Come Let's and join. It. Come take a lesson. See if you like us. See it's if super you, fun. If you it's like your fun. instrument. We, we don't have a single not cool student. It's, it's, it's it, really it's true. Awesome. Everyone's really, really cool. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for tuning thanks in. For tuning thanks for tuning in. in. We appreciate you. Mm -hmm. uh, and come sign up. Go to the website. First thing that pops up is uh, the form to sign up for your first complimentary lesson. Come and do that. We have everything. We have, oh, I'm about to do the Stefan. Oh, my god. We gosh. have everything. <laughs> this club has everything. Ooh, that was one of my favorite skits of all time. It's a good sketch. Okay, goodbye and engage. Engage.